Well, a very, very warm welcome uh, to this Sunday Forum. My name is Mark Oakley, and it's my real pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here, and also to welcome today's speaker. When I was studying in Oxford, I had an appointment once to seek the advice of today's speaker. The porter at the College Lodge asked my name. Oakley, I said. To see Dr. Coakley, I said. <laughs> He looked at me very suspiciously. <laughs> Oakley for Coakley, that right, sir? <laughs> yes, I said. Then you better put your left leg in, he continued. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, professor Sarah Coakley is Norris Hall's Professor in Divinity at the University of Cambridge, and she's previously held acad academic posts at uh, Lancaster, Oxford, Harvard, Princeton. In 2013, she published the first volume of her systematic theology, God, Sexuality and the Self, and her latest book, The New Asceticism, Sexuality, Gender and the Quest for God, is out, I believe, this very week. If God's gift to us is our being, and our gift in return is our becoming, Professor Coakley's work always pushes our contours and explores our confusions to see afresh what it means to be that human being or human becoming, living with desire. And en route in that search, she helps us to reimagine concepts and vocabularies and churchy political wranglings. I just read her latest book on the train to Lincoln and back this weekend, and I had to keep putting it down as challenge after challenge to lazy thinking came my way for me to appropriate and to allow in. As you read, you can feel new things inside happening, and that's true theology, not so much informative as formative. And it's a real delight to be able to welcome Professor Coakley as she speaks to us on a theology of desire. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a delight to be with you again. I think we're both a bit older, not necessarily any wiser. Um, it's lovely to be with you today. And I want to talk about some of the contents of this new little book, The New Asceticism. It was not my idea to write this book, but in this case, a um, kind editor, a uh, very experienced Roman Catholic editor, Robin Baird-Smith um, of Bloomsbury, had been reading some of my essays that were written towards the end of my time at Harvard and asked if I would sew them together. Um, and it was he, I think, who saw something of the unity in them, and so I must express my gratitude to him. I'm going to talk today about the introduction to this book and then a little bit about the first essay, which is emblematic of the central themes of the whole. The broad project of this little set of essays is to give new cultural and theological content to the very out-of-date, unfashionable notion of Christian asceticism. I spend much of the introduction to the volume explaining why I think this is important, but also intensely difficult in the conditions, as I see it, of huge and unacknowledged cultural paradoxicality in our culture about issues of the body, sexuality, and gender. Indeed, I think as a developed Western privileged culture, we are in a muddle about these issues, and it's not really surprising, therefore, that the churches seem to be even more in the muddle, since the churches often, as it were, uh, represent a kind of lightning rod for the culture at large. The collection of five essays in this new book focus on, first, the abuse scandals in the Roman Catholic Church, which broke in Boston at the time I was teaching at Harvard. The different, but interestingly um, uh, occurring at the same time, homosexuality wars in the Anglican Communion. The problems for continuing conservatives in our churches of the 
priestly woman at the altar, representing to conservatives a erotic cosmological disturbance. I argue it is an erotic cosmological disturbance, and a good thing too. The relation between contemplation, um, sexuality, and the doctrine of the Trinity, and the importance of practices in the ascetic life for virtue and for uh, formation. And if you want to know what, what on earth these topics are doing hanging together, um, let me start by plowing in and saying why I think they have a kind of shared, indeed a double root, and that's what I talk about in the introduction. First, I think what these topics, which are causing us so much trouble in the churches, reveal is an uncertainty about the very meaning of desire in our culture, its range of uh, application beyond the sexual or genital, and its moral valence. I think we've stopped in our culture thinking about how sexual desire is related to other desires, like desires for power or intimacy or money or food and drink um, or the um, state of the ecology. And we've particularly stopped thinking about the relationship between sexual desire and desire for God, which strikes many of us as really quite disjunct in terms of how we reflect on our lives. And so the book is a challenge to begin to think about desires as in a tether and how they are ordered together and how they're related to the desire that God has for us and us for God. And the second side of the tangled root is therefore the, what I call, ascetical problem, the problem of practice, of how to think about desire in such a tether, in a fallen world. How to acknowledge the force for good as well as for ill in our desires. How to acknowledge the need for the transformation of our desires over a lifetime's long haul of sorting, sorting desires until they are, as it were, rightly ordered in God. And how we may have a capacity within the life of grace, in the economy of grace, to train ourselves in the realm of desire, in projects of formation and habit. That's the, that's the project of the book. I say on page three, at the heart of the book, then, is an analysis of some striking contemporary confusions about desire itself, a clarification of the unconscious paradoxes that inhere in this confusion, and a proposal for a resolution through the recovery of a new vision of the ascetic life. And I go on, the chief problem with the category of desire in our culture is it has become so heavily sexualized in the modern post-Freudian period as to render its connections with other desires, including desire for God, obscure and puzzling. And the chief problem with the category of asceticism is that within the same period, it has become larded with the negative associations of repression, ecclesiastical authoritarianism, and even denial about abuse. So these two key themes, desire and asceticism, are the ones I'm trying to probe and to give new valence to. And I want to argue that if we are to do anything positive and creative with these two categories, it must be done in a resolutely theological way. First, we need a newly forged theology of how human desire and desire, divine desire relate. And secondly, I want to say that only a lived, purified, revived form of the ascetic life will rescue our churches from their current divisions and incoherences on questions of sexuality, in which, as I see it, a false modern disjunction of alternatives has entered in between, on the one hand, libertinism, letting it all hang out, and on the other hand, repression. And we tend to assume, as we bounce back watching the liberal versus conservative 
ping-pong match here, uh, both sides uh, with supporting biblical texts, which tend to then bog down into unsatisfactory stasis. We tend to assume that repression is one option on one side, and libertinism, its opposite, is what you lurch to if you no longer repress. Um, these are modern categories, and I want to suggest that ascetic thinking, going right back to the New Testament and Jesus' great demands about the kingdom and desire within the kingdom, needs to be looked at afresh, and particularly through the lens of the wisdom of the early Greek fathers, who may or may not be familiar to you. We're more familiar probably in the West with Augustine. Now, in the introduction itself, I first try and spell out some cultural confusions about, that are abroad, generally speaking, um, about desire, um, because I think they are so prevalent as to be, um, uh, as to be taken for granted. And I think we as Christians ought to be thinking very hard about them rather than just assuming that they are there. Um, here, as I put it in the introduction, are three uh, paradoxes, confusions, unresolved aporiae, as we like to say with long words of theologians, uh, that is, uh, unresolved dilemmas, which it seems to me are worth discussing and which are often just not probed when people are talking about sexuality. The first is that whereas Christians, I think, know how to answer this first question, it's often not thoroughly investigated or even um, thought about philosophically in the glossy magazine Sexual Reflections. Who read the uh, colour supplement of the Times yesterday to check out whether you have a middle-aged marriage? Yes. Um, did you probe some of the... I certainly have a middle-aged marriage, by the way, and I'm proud of it, but <laughs> it's all of 40 years old. But... Um, and very happy too, but um, some of the presumptions that lay under the surface in that analysis, which I think were very interesting. The first dilemma I think that we're up against often is whether we, um, whether we are reducible to our bodies. This is a philosophical question. Am I reducible to my physical body, or am I, as it were, um, piloting or controlling my body um, from some other site of control. Now, if you um, think about the divergence in contemporary culture between absolutely taken for granted regnant physicalism in much scientific work, i.e. the reduction of ourselves to physical entities, and much uh, materialism in philosophy of mind, the assumption that I simply am my grey matter, my grey cells, and then compare that with sports magazines, for instance, and slimming magazines, which are all about um, the eye who controls the body from some other site. Um, well, which is it? Um, what is your view, ultimately, on the relationship of body and something else, mind or soul? The second thing that I think we're in a great confusion about um, is this. Is body sexual desire, something that, as it were, rightfully demands satisfaction, something that its frustration would um, block um, a fundamental right to happiness. In fact, is sexual love a right, sexual enactment a right? Um, indeed, is it a private right, which is nobody else's business but my own and my partner, my consensual partner? Or is there some necessary, as it were, constraint, some necessary balance, some necessary stability in this area that should be sought, um, which should be required by our reflections on the nature of society and particularly the nature of the church? This confusion, I think, is particularly rife in America where the pursuit of happiness is, of course, part of um, uh, the fundamental rights of American thinking. But there are some oddities when this is extended to the sexual realm. 
as if um, sexual enactment did not have implications for those beyond the partners concerned. Thirdly, the other thing I think we're confused about is, is as it were, self-indulgence, the um, pursuit of uh, pleasure um, in matters of sex, food and drink in our culture, um, a good to be pursued, or are we much more drawn at times to punitive dieting and the cult of the slim? And I ask this because very often in glossy magazines you get a picture of, an, saw one today, an enormous hamburger um, and then a very sexy, slim girl next to it. And uh, most uh, magazines that one reads at the hairdresser contain within them um, indulgent uh, menus for large cakes and so on and so forth and then anxious articles about slimming. And this contradiction strikes me as one that is also, um, as it were, leaks into thinking about sex as well. So we don't tend to think about the relationship between desire for um, indulgence in food and alcohol as related very much to questions of sexuality. But it's part of the deep wisdom of the especially Greek monastic tradition that these hang together. I recall very well when the sex scandals broke in Boston uh, at the beginning of this century. Cardinal Law, before he had to retire to Rome, was seen on the television every night, sensing the altar and kind of limping round the altar with two other enormously overweight priests. And, and you couldn't help thinking, you know, this, this, is a, this is a problem for the whole church that's been revealed, a terrible scandal, um, a terrible secret. But there seems to be no perception that that kind of um, abusive um, uh, disorder might be connected in some way to other arenas of life in which um, moderation um, of pleasure needs to be thought about. So I think we are up against cultural contradictions and it would be very interesting to hear from you how you think the Christian church ought to be responding to these and whether there is clear enough teaching on them. Now, it's in the first part of the book, the introduction, that I expose these. And I also look at some of the reasons why asceticism, ha-ha, doesn't seem sexy in our contemporary culture. There was, of course, a very important critique of asceticism by three great cultural critics of theology in the 19th to 20th century. Uh, Nietzsche, who sees asceticism as, um, at least in some of its forms, as a particularly um, unfortunate form of the will to power. Uh, Freud, who um, had a very important place for sublimation in his theorizing um, and saw it as necessary if culture was to endure, but nonetheless um, identified this with a form of repression. And thirdly, Michel Foucault, who in his famous three-volumed history of, of, um, of sexuality is particularly concerned to expose the way that the Roman Catholic confessional both elevated sexuality and used it as uh, a tool um, for um, control and the false abuse of power. I think all these critics really need listening to because there's no doubt that asceticism can go wrong. And you might say that books like John Cornwell's Seminary Boy or um, uh, other books that expose how uh, in the pre-Vatican II era in the Roman Catholic Church, um, there were actually abuses of power and sexual abuses of power in some institutions that were cloaked by the apparent um, baptism by an ascetic life. So the hermeneutics of suspicion is something that always has to be in play. But unfortunately, the reaction to that sometimes debased form of asceticism has led, I think, to a deep level of confusion about what can replace it. Let me tell you now, very briefly, and then we can open the floor for a discussion, how I try to resolve these difficulties and confusions. I do so... Um, first and foremost in chapter one, and that's all I'm going to talk about here. 
by asking my audience to rethink a new way beyond repression and libertinism. And my suggestion is that actually we can utilize very fruitfully the insights of the early monastic Eastern tradition, but particularly someone of whom I am especially fond, the fourth century author Gregory of Nyssa. Now Gregory of Nyssa is extremely unusual, indeed unique, in the Greek ascetic tradition, because although he had two elder siblings who were extremely famous ascetics, um, who were always celibate, Basil the Great of Caesarea and Macrina, both of whom were monastics, Gregory himself was married in his early life. And very puzzlingly to his audience, he wrote his first uh, published work was called On Virginity. And he wrote this On Virginity when he was married, which has puzzled very much um, commentators since then. What can he be on about? He is elevating celibacy, and yet he clearly isn't practicing it himself. Now, what's so interesting, I think, especially in comparison with the slightly later Western author Augustine, is that unlike Augustine, who struggled so mightily um, with the force of uh, the eruptive force of male sexuality in his youth, and then eventually became continent under the um, aegis of grace, and put all that away while still being deeply aware that male sexuality especially could be very dangerous and abusive. Gregory of Nyssa, in contrast, does not regard sexual activity in marriage, per se, as problematic. In fact, he thinks of it as a great good. Moreover, he thinks that it's possible to lead an importantly ascetic life while being married. And he thinks that the project of asceticism in good marriages is closer to the project of asceticism in good celibacy than what's happening in bad celibacy and bad marriages. And so on a sliding scale of good, he thinks that um, desire properly ordered to its ends and to God in the celibate life and in a good married life are actually extraordinarily similar. Now this is very puzzling to people because we tend to think now of celibacy and marriage as opposites, as opposed to thinking of good celibacy and good marriage as lives in which all desires are put into the pot of, of reflection and thought about in relation to our fundamental and primary desire for God. Indeed, thought about in the context in which God's desire for us is constantly drawing us to God in a way that, as it were, purifies and sorts and puts in the right order the significance of our desires. So Gregory sets before us this idea, much of which comes out of the Gospels, much of which comes out of Jesus' insistence that we put first the kingdom of God. Jesus said rather little about sex, an awful lot about money, if you think about it. So many of his parables about money. Where is your heart? Right? Um, when he does talk about sex, he's both very demanding in relation to marriage and also very forgiving in relation to failure. It's an interesting paradox. But if you start thinking about what Jesus has to say about sex and money and the kingdom, you begin to see where Gregory's going. What he also does is to take resources from the Platonic tradition, primarily from that famous text um, of Plato's The Symposium, the, uh, the dinner party. I'm sure many of you here have read this, have you? Some of you? Yeah. yeah. And if you remember, I'll just recap for those of you who haven't. This is one of the greatest texts in the Greek Platonic tradition about what beauty and eros are for, erotic love. And there's a famous climax to the um, discussion about what sex is for, what desire is for, which interestingly is put in the mouth of a woman, a prophetess, um, who is reported in her views by, by Socrates. And Socrates bows to her superior wisdom. And what Diotima says about Eros is that 
Eros must be subject to a lifetime's purification. First, in our youth, we fall in love violently with one person. And funnily enough, in this particular text, she talks about this in relation to homoerotic love. Then, as we begin to mature, we begin to see the beauty that we first saw only in one golden head. In many others, we begin to see that actually this beauty is divine in itself. It actually is drawing us upwards to the realm of the platonic forms, the form of beauty. And so what we are doing in our lives is gradually, as it were, distancing ourselves from obsessional uh, love simply of one person. And Eros is becoming purified towards its true source in the divine realm. Now, of course, this is problematic for those who are engaged in sexual activity because it seems to suggest that the goal is celibacy alone. What Gregory does is to take this, to marry it with the ideas from the gospel just mentioned, and to say, yes, we are engaged throughout our lives in projects of desire which ultimately have their source in God and which are a matter of ascetical discernment about whether they are in order or not. Moreover, the goal of the ascetic life for Gregory, this is really interesting, is not to dampen desire. No, not at all. It is actually to intensify it, to, um, as, to, to, as it were, make the stream of desire more intense, stronger, as it becomes unified towards God. Then, all the other desires will fall into place as this intensification of desire to God comes to its fruition. Now, therefore, he can say, very surprisingly, um, you might think, that for the married, it's a matter of finding the place of sexual desire in the marriage, which also brings with it appropriate discernment about matters of money, of matters of attention to the poor, of matters to attention to the ecology of life around us, of matters that concern the upbringing of children. But then he says, most interestingly, the climax of desire in a married couple may well be that when their children have gone away and grown up, then one seeks the heights of desire in the face of Christ in the poor the married couple should progress towards a point in which they become more chaotic, more self-emptying to God as they grow old, and so give the energy that they previously gave to bringing up their children to um, a following of Jesus in this particular mode. Now, what I want to suggest and open the discussion is I think we have kind of lost our reflections on desire in this kind of mode, if we ever had it. The key features here are thinking about desire in a tether of desires, thinking about desire as related to God's desire for us, and then thinking about sex in the context of that. What we're looking for, according to Gregory, is a life of balance and moderation, where no desires are obsessive, where there is enough detachment to be able to hand over all good desires to God, and at the same time to hand all bad desires to God as well in a project of purification of them. So that at the end of one's life, one can be entirely focused on the quest for Christ and his life that is being asked of us ascetically. Let me just end by saying this. What difference would this make to our current ructions in the churches especially the Anglican Church, about homosexuality and the ructions in the Roman Catholic Church about whether celibacy is possible. They seem to be two entirely different questions, but actually I think they have this shared root. In other words, how about if we thought about problems of homosexuality in our churches 
not as dividing the heterosexual world from the homosexual world, as if there was nothing wrong with the heterosexual world at the moment, nothing disordering it, and everything was wrong with the homosexual world, but rather think about a shared project of the sort that I'm looking at, where stability, faithfulness, um, uh, the sorting of desires, uh, uh, as it were, take the place of our crude swings between libertinism and repression. That strikes me as a fully Christian uh, way forward in this context. And in relation to the Roman Catholic um, worries about celibacy, it seems to me that celibacy can never be accepted simply as a burden of obedience. It has to be freely taken on in an undertaking which involves looking at all desires together, looking at our desires for intimacy as well as sex, looking for our for that desires to find balance in matters of food and drink, sleep, and so on and so forth in relation to um, sexual desire. Because without that wider reach of reflection, I do think that celibacy is very, very difficult to maintain and is in any case probably the gift of a relative minority of people. So I leave you with those suggestions. There are some biblical roots here. There's a strong dose of Plato that some of you may be allergic to. Um, there's a, um, a proposal that instead of arguing about whether um, gays and lesbians um, should call their alliances marriage. I would propose that instead, since marriage has often been a word used very lightly in the Christian tradition, we think about faithful, stable vows of fidelity as what can join the monastic undertaking, heterosexual marriage, and gay and lesbian commitments and that this is the real acid test where Jesus is concerned. Thank you. Can I then uh, ask you to raise your hand if you'd like to ask uh, Professor Cody? Yes. Oh, brilliant, Peter. I think you've got the little clutch of text that we need there. Um, so, obviously people became celibate in the tradition of Jesus because they saw that he himself had lived that life rather unexpectedly in the Jewish milieu. The saying about um, eunuchs for the sake of heaven is a little bit obscure, quite what it means. Um, but when he's tested about the resurrection life, he says there will be no marrying and giving in marriage. Um, and he suggests there, if anything, that there may even be a kind of realm of life beyond the binary of gender in some way. And that was very interesting to um, the ascetic writers of the fourth century, including Macrina, um, Gregory of Nyssa's sister, because she saw that as a text that meant she wasn't bound by the normal societal presumptions about women. So that, was, that, was, that text had a very kind of liberative effect on women in the ascetic life. Whereas when we come to questions of uh, divorce, I think it's rather clear that the Markan version of the saying is the original, um, where Jesus simply says that if you divorce, you commit adultery. Um, and that in marriage, he quotes Genesis here, we were made one flesh. Um, so there's no getting around it. Uh, he is immensely demanding. Um, and he intends, clearly, marriage is 
in his mode to be more demanding in this area than was allowed in the Deuteronomic law, where divorce was allowed, of course, under certain conditions, only if a man initiated it. So what do we conclude from this? This is what's so intriguing. We have some kind of vision of the unmarried vocation, the celibate vocation. It's a little bit murky what it involves, um, but it's suggested that um, marriage uh, may not have meaning and the binary of gender may not have meaning in the future life. And then we have a very demanding teaching about marriage. Um, and finally, I think we should add, think about the woman taken in adultery in John, and which some texts actually expunge because it was too difficult for them to take it on, um, and also the woman at the well in Samaria. There we see the Jesus who understands when people get in an erotic muddle um, and is deeply compassionate to them, but asks them to sin no more. So that's the package. Um, and I think the churches have shown um, that they aren't necessarily completely bound by that package. Very good to come back mm. to you. I mean, um, you'll know that Tolstoy, he writes that postscript to the Quetta uh, Sonata. I mean, is that an example of where things went a little bit wrong in terms of uh, um, how to interpret Christian marriage? <laughs> Do you want to spell it out a bit more for the rest? <laughs> well, Tolstoy was a Pelagian, mm. so he believes that morality was a matter of knowledge. Um, and, I mean, he basically seemed to say that we should all basically remain celibate and mm. not have children, mm. um, and that would bring that kingdom of heaven to earth mm -hmm. more quickly. Um, and I think that's entertained by some of the Christian followers. It is. Um, it's one of the reasons given for celibacy, um, well, of course, initially by Paul. <laughs> Um, and then it's certainly also in the minds of the Cappadocian fathers in the fourth century that to step off the whirly gig of uh, reproduction um, is one of the things that one can do in preparation for the end of time. Yeah, I don't suppose we can replicate that right now, but. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question about the biblical roots of mm. desire that you mm. mentioned. You mentioned um, yep. Gospels and Jesus' teaching. Um, I'm curious, uh, as well maybe to, to cast a bit of a bigger perspective over desire in the Bible, yes. theologically. Yes. Um, and so I, I jotted down, God's desire for us draws us to Him, mm. purifies our desire. And uh, to me, I'm, I'm doing research into Ruach mm. in Psalm 51, for example. Yes. Um, you have uh, Ruach often, Ruach is spirit or breath, often best translated as desire rather than spirit. Um, so for Psalm 51, put the right desire in me. Yes. Um, and I think probably Gregory might be conducive to that sort of. Absolutely. You know, or you may choose to go elsewhere in Bible, but I wonder what. There's a paradox here because there is plenty of language of desire, especially in the Psalms in the Old Testament, um, and it's usually of this, the sort, um, uh, like as the heart desireth the water brooks. It's this sense of yearning and longing for God, or the yearning and longing to be in the temple with God, and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, supremely in the Old Testament, there is the Song of Songs, which represents the entire life of Israel in relation to Yahweh as one of erotic attraction. Um, and this was to become enormously important for the early church as it reflected on matters of longing for God. So it's actually Gregory of Nyssa who writes one of the early commentaries on the Psalm of Songs. It's particularly beautiful. But there's also a paradox because within the New Testament, there is very little use of the verbs related to the notion eros. Um, and uh, so there has grown up a very strong modern assertion associated often with a Swedish theologian called Anders Nugren that Jesus' teaching on agape is definitely completely different from any teaching about eros in Plato. So, I mean, this is one of the problems we're trying to get beyond, I think. I think that's a false disjunction myself because although Jesus 
does not choose to use the language that is translated into Greek as eros. Um, nonetheless, all his teaching about the kingdom is about longing for the right goal, it seems to me, even though another range of language is used. There's one really beautiful place in the New Testament where Jesus does talk about desire, and it's in Luke's Gospel in the Last Supper when he says, with desire I have desired to eat this Eucharist with you, to eat this Passover with you, epithymua epithumesa. And that's, it is Lucan theology, but I think it's particularly beautiful because it shows you that as he approaches his own death, this is the thing he desires above all, to give his body to his own disciples um, for the future. And that suggests a kind of you know, intensification of his own desires as he faces his own mortality. So yes, you're absolutely right. This all has to be put into this bigger biblical picture and there are different words that are used at different times. But ultimately, I believe strongly that the marriage between this theme in the Bible and the Platonic tradition of Eros is a fundamentally fruitful one, even though it involves a modification of what Plato himself says about desire. Can I just, um, I was just thinking as you spoke then that uh, desire today is so much understood in terms of the desire to possess. So if you, if you look at adverts, you, you can never actually work out if the man is having the affair with the woman or with the car. <laughs> and so there's this desire to possess, but God's desire is to give away. So he's desiring to give his body. The spirit is, giving, is given out. And I wonder whether the desires are, are to possess or to, to as it were, kenosis. <laughs> that's, that's the trouble, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that the ascetic project that um, in our attempt to um, not only emulate but participate in God's desire for us, there's a struggle in which we have to dispossess ourselves of the possessive element. Um, and often eros in the symposium is assumed to be only possessive. Actually, I think that's a misreading because I think in that ascent, what's happening is that the self is being asked to cease from being possessive to a point of detachment where it can receive from the form of beauty the love that it needs to know. But thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Uh, yes, Daniel. <laughs> um, I'm wondering about um, I'm taking part in the shared conversations on human sexuality mm, mm, um, within my diocese. Mm. And we are thinking a lot about other. So we are thinking about what it is to be homosexual and whether or not there is a place for that uh, representation of our human sexuality within the church and where its place sits. And it feels as though the aesthetic project that mm. you're proposing has an element of um, self, so looking at our starting point with our own desire. Mm. And therefore, we can afford to not be polarised and be much more generous mm. in when, at the points at which we come together corporately to reflect on that. Because we are, after all, all sinning in terms yeah, of our yeah, desires. Exactly. And when we understand our own sinful position, we can't then go, well, I'm a sinner. Actually, I'm married, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can kind of be much more understanding and less worried about yeah. the representation of desire in others. Because it does feel that there's a shocking fear of, 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 of sexuality more gen generally as represented by a kind of sex that's different to the sex that we're engaged in. It, it does. I mean, I think what you're picking up on beautifully is precisely the shift of thinking that, um, that I'm trying to propose that um, it's not as if the heterosexual arena of life is, is lacking problems, right? I mean, think of the you know, astonishing um, amount of use of pornography which fills our imaginations and distorts them in a possessive and objectifying way. Um, and so there's not much said in the church about problems of pornography. I mean, I, I meet this a lot in the university because 
chaplains find in the university, I'm not a chaplain, but I talk to chaplains a lot, that, you know, we're now dealing with a generation of young men who have got most of their sex education on through the web. And so right from the start, their imaginations are filled with fairly abusive forms of sexual expression, which their girlfriends are then meant to subject to. So this causes enormous trouble in, in young people's relationships and also enormous problems within marriages. And it strikes me, you know, the churches ought to be worrying about this um, and uh, how it affects both heterosexual and homosexual and, and um, uh, relationships um, and making that a bit more of a project for reflection. Um, the ultimate test, it seems to me, this is where I love what Gregory says about this, is you know, where, does your, where does your desire go in terms of giving back to society? Which desires actually create creativity, um, faithfulness, stability, what you might call glue within our fragmented society? That's the acid test, ultimately. So thank you. That's helpful. The element of removing sex from giving oneself pleasure to giving the other person pleasure mm -hmm. is a process of growth mm -hmm. along that trajectory mm -hmm. that you're talking on. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested, having worked in a number of different countries, whether the traditions of the book, the religions of the book, have emphasized sort of law and emphasized almost a battle between mm -hmm. the soul and the body. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes the soul is very much linked more in terms of the mind, so that it's, the mind is meant to be full of laws which the body has to obey. Um, I, 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 once in my life I found the notion of chakra points very interesting. Mm -hmm. That the fact, the energy between the different layers is, is a graduation of it. And I sometimes said to people, look, um, if you get a buzz with somebody, the thing to do is to negotiate this energy that you've got, <laughs> not to think that you've got to leave them to bed immediately or that you're going to talk for hours. And um, it, it is that work to do, uh, to, to, it's the self-knowledge that we yes. need to do. Yeah. Um, and to harness the enormous power for good that sexuality brings, and the great power of affirming another person, mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people get so individuated. When I look at societies that are tribal, and there's always many people around, and there's dancing, and there's all that sort of thing that goes on, compare it to a lone individual who's only got a choice between a bottle of whiskey and a prostitute, mm -hmm. as it were, to, to overcome that loneliness, that we've got to somehow put things back into a Context. That's lovely. You've raised several points there. They're all, I think, very profound. Um, we have, this is to go back to the first cultural contradiction I spelled out. You know, am I reducible to my body? And if so, what does that mean? Am I trying to control it from some other site? Or is there something that's escaping us here? All right. Which is a much more subtle understanding about how. For a Christian, there has to be a soul as well as a body. Um, but what is the relationship? How is that, as it were, how does that mature? Um, how does it mature in a way that isn't only interested in my pleasure, but in the transformation, the creative transformation of family and society round about me? Um, I, we, we lack teaching on this, don't we? I mean, I, I agree, the chakra points are very, very interesting because they show that the Vedic and, and Chinese wisdoms about the body and medicine have this, this subtle body realm, which is, as it were, between soul and body, and which gives all kinds of varieties of possibilities, which mostly in the West we don't think about. Yes. Um, I think, as you know, Sarah, I'm going to be embedded in Teresa Rabbit. Yes. And um, thinking about, I mean, Yes, the Benini statue everybody knows, which is very erotic, but at first I, I tend to go to the I don't like it, but the more I'm reading her, that she does have, she uses an erotic relationship with God. Yes. But I think in the way you say that, that it is, it's a refined desire 
incredible. But she's also so sensible about, you know, body asceticism. Yeah, she yeah. tells them, don't overdo it. Um, and I was thinking, you wonder if one of our, and you also get similar things in late medieval writers, is one of our problems is has Freud screwed things up for us? Yes. Thank you. I, I was, I was glad that someone raised that because there was a bit of my little paper here that I cut out, which is about Freud. And so can I just say something about Freud? I'll be as quick as I can. Freud is much more interesting than the popular Freudianism of the glossy magazines. All right. And I gave myself the task of going back and rereading Freud chronologically because he changed his mind very extraordinarily during his career. And it's not surprising because it, the, the wisdom that arises, arises as he ages. And we don't tend to think about sexuality as having a history, right? Um, but, you know, being fairly ancient myself now, I think I can talk about this. Um, and the fact is that over the years, you can develop a much more integrated vision of body and soul and I think that's what happened to Freud. In his early years, the interpretation of dreams, he's talking about what he calls libido. It's mainly about focus on male sexuality, um, the, the great difficulties of negotiating, um, you know, the eruptive desires of a young man. Um, but the necessity of repression of some degree, otherwise there'd be chaos. But by the time he arrives at his last work, particularly civilization and its discontents, he's talking very positively about sublimation in a rather particular sense of using all the energy associated with sexuality for other ends, including those of societal love. And it's at that point that he recovers, he reads again Plato's Symposium, and he begins to see that there's some wisdom there that, he, that it's really important to incorporate. He actually thinks that the sexual urge can be channeled to societal love, for instance. And he begins to sound a lot more like Gregory of Nyssa. So, unfortunately, we blame things on Freud when we don't read him very carefully. And I think there's a general presumption out there that it was Freud who taught us that unless we're sexually active, we'll somehow be terribly unhappy and um, you know, not, uh, not functioning at all as people, et cetera, et cetera. When the fact of the matter is that all of us at some points of our lives are going to be without sexual activity for whatever reasons. And this is not the end of the world. And in fact, it may actually be a period when we are learning more about our bodies than when we were carelessly active sexually. So to go back to Teresa, I think she's a wonderful model um, for looking at how erotic desire can be channeled in various different ways, and very creatively too. And I think Benini got her completely wrong. <laughs> He trivialized her by mistake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if you think the phrase is useful, the sexuality of the mind, rather mm -hmm. than overrising mind and body. Mm -hmm. The other um, word I've been listening out for, which has been used, is energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a very, well, it's a doubly profound question. First of all, the first one, I take it as axiomatic that when we talk about sexual desire, this is, you know, a fascinatingly complex relationship of mind and body. It, it engages our imaginations above all. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's part of its delicacy and, 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 and its power, right? Uh, we're not brute beasts. Um, we're people of imagination and insight and culture and also of lust. Um, energy is interesting because that's exactly the word, actually, that um, Gregory Nyssa often uses. Um, because like Plato, and this is controversial, I'd really like to know what you think about this. Like Plato, he thinks that sexual desire is rather like a stream that you can, it's like the hydraulic image of, that Plato uses in the symposium of, if you want water to come up onto a higher level, you have to intensify the, the stream, the energy, to bring it up, right? 
And so Gregory thinks that our lives should be engaged in intensifying desire, not uh, uh, obliterating it, and that the energy that we thus intensified rightly towards God will, as it were, spill over into everything else that we are engaged in culturally. Psychoanalysts on the whole, there are probably some in the room, worry about this, this sublimation idea, the channeling notion. They think, they think it can go badly wrong, as indeed it can. And I think the danger here is that we can imagine that we can master this energy and redirect it, when actually, as Augustine saw more even than Gregory, um, the idea that we can completely master this is probably self-delusive, and we need help from each other, from the wisdom of tradition, and from the grace of God above all. My name is Kenneth Douglas from the University of Sloan. Um, we heard this morning that uh, the Reverend Canon Drew White uh, mm -hmm. spoke to us about displacement of our fellow Christians in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, Given the rise that a lot of them have lost their livelihoods and uh, forced into uh, poverty and also prostitution, etc., etc., what, what advice would you uh, basically have for, for them if they were your audience today? Yeah, well, that's, that makes one feel ashamed of the indulgence of even spending an hour talking about Western problems about sex. Um, however, what I do want to say is this is in the same nexus. I mean, if what would you do if you were kidnapped and asked to denounce your Christian faith by ISIS? That's really asking you, what is, where is your fundamental desire, right? And these, these kids said, it's with God. That was the test, right? Um, we don't think of that as being in any way related to the happiness of sex or whatever, and I don't suppose at that moment they were thinking about it either. But the question that's asked anyone who joins a monastic community, quid pettis, what are you fundamentally seeking, is asking the question I'm after here in, as the, at, the, at the heart of the ascetic task. Fortunately for us, most of us will not have to face that question in that way but we marvel at the people who have the grace to respond in the way those people are doing. We have one time, one last question. Um, you've mentioned the word marriage several times, mm. and I'm wondering if you could tell us what you think marriage is, mm. because I think that's actually very important to the kind of debate within the Anglican Church, about who we should allow to marry within yes. the Anglican yes. Church. And it seems to me that marriage takes various forms. I have friends who were living in what you would call a Christian marriage, mm. and I have friends who were married, and their marriages are nothing like that at all. Mm. Um, and when the dean was being interviewed about this question, he said the church doesn't have a monopoly on marriage. And it made me think that marriage actually exists in different forms. And I wondered how you would define marriage for us. Yes, um, this is a bit of a semantic minefield because there are obviously people um, in the Roman Catholic Church, especially because of the magisterial teaching on this, and many conservatives in our own church who want to keep the title marriage for heterosexual couples who wish to commit themselves to having children. All right. And um, I prefer a much more um, generic approach to this in terms of the mutual fulfillment and exploration of desire for the sake of the world under the um, sacramental um, uh, blessing of the church. So um, what is it that I'm doing with my husband? Well, I, I see us as engaged in a mutual and uh, uh, mutually bound by vows undertaking to fulfill our Christian lives together in a way that um, we couldn't do if we were al alone, that this is actually a, a very complicated and continuous negotiation of how best to love Christ as one. So that's, that's what I see it as fundamentally, and that's why I think, regardless of the nomenclature, I see no reason whatsoever that this can't also be equally seriously pursued homoerotically.
Um, the questions that have been um, brought up by yourself in this book and, and in this room today are so obviously alive and kicking. This tether of desires, as you call it, and the erotic model. <laughs> uh, but so often we are so native, we actually can't see ourselves anymore. Uh, and the way that society can't see itself, of course, is reflected in, in communities of faith as well. Uh, and it seems to me that your great gift, and you have many, well, one of them is this theological spotlight <laughs> that shines across us all. Uh, and that's important because it seems to me that recognition is the first step towards salvation. Um, you, you mentioned Freud who called, famously called uh, dreaming the undressing of the mind. And I think in many ways you're, you're doing a theological uh, activity that's very similar. You're undressing our minds because actually we need to sell, see ourselves a bit more naked uh, and, and what we actually want. Uh, I believe very much that cathedrals are here for these exact type of explorations. Uh, though they're difficult, um, and, and therefore, because they're difficult, they must be important. Uh, and therefore, you are a hugely welcome guest and tutor here today. And on behalf of everybody, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark.